here's what I've realized is uh, the places I've traveled, I go there and there are, there are some things about the countries that are so different than the United States. Things that we take for granted, things that seem obvious to us, um, they don't have. And so when people, when we go there, when people come here, they realize that um, their way of life is very different than our way of life, that they have different values and customs and beliefs and behaviors. And, and so let me just rattle off a couple of things that people might find surprising if they came to the United States that we just think is totally normal. So one of the things is, um, well, our whole food industry for people is shocking for some reason. But here's the one of the ones that was most shocking to me when I went to other places was there's no free refills and there's no ice. What? How do you even? That's crazy to me. How are you supposed to have your 12 sodas for the day? That doesn't make any sense. Or um, people are surprised about the, uh, the, the portions that we have here in the United States. My dad was telling me about a, a Chinese woman who came and visited recently, and they brought the food to the table, and she just assumed it was for the entire table. And they're like, no, that's just, <laughs> that's just for you. <laughs> you know, that's, that's how we do it here in the United States. Oh, by the way, we're giving back to God. If you're wondering what these buckets are, this is our offering time. If you're visiting, don't feel obligated to give. Uh, okay, a couple other things. Um, I guess it's not normal to deep fry everything in the world. I don't know. Yeah, I don't get that. I, uh, I, I look forward to going to the fair every year just to eat deep fried everything, right? Okay, how about, their, how about cars? People are oftentimes surprised about our cars. Is we have full-size SUVs and pickups, and you know what the version of that is in like the United Kingdom? A station wagon. Lame. This is why we live in the United States. Hello. Okay, how about this? Um, socially, we do things differently socially. So yesterday there was a, a big sports game, I've been told, and, uh, and I, I think probably there was a lot of people who would hang out before the game and they would do this thing where they would just sit, and this is kind of crazy if you think about it, they would just sit in a parking lot on the back of their cars and cook hot dogs off the exhaust of their cars. Is that just, is that bizarre to anybody else? No? All right, how about this? Have you ever met somebody who it became uh, very clear that they were from a different country because their personal space was much different than your personal space? Like if you're talking to them and they're here, you know? Or I had somebody who was clearly not from the United States that was behind me uh, at, when I was getting coffee and they were like, here. And I was kind of like, excuse me, hello. Very, very different. In every culture, every nation, every kingdom, they have their own set of values and beliefs and, and behaviors. In the passage that we're going to look at today, we see that Jesus lays out all those things for the kingdom of God. He says, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, here is what it looks like. Here's what we value. Here's how we, here's how we behave. Here's what we believe. And so I want to look at this piece of scripture, but I got to give you a little bit of a setup, but some background information. So it takes place in Matthew, and what happens so far in Matthew is Jesus has just come onto the scene, he's begun his ministry, and he goes around pe preaching this message. He says, the kingdom of God has come near. Somehow that when he arrived, the kingdom of God had arrived with him. Now, this is taking place right in the middle of the Bible. It's the middle of God's story. And so for us, we're kind of jumping in and we go, kingdom of God. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Even those of us who have been at church our entire lives, when we are um, thinking about the kingdom of God, it's still a little fuzzy for us. And so I want to just give you the big picture because you got to understand the big picture to understand what comes next. And so what Jesus is talking about here, when he talks about the kingdom of God or it says the kingdom of heaven, 
He's saying that um, if you rewind human history, you go all the way back to Genesis, it tells us that God created us in his image and that he created us unique so that we could have a relationship with him. And we were supposed to uh, submit to his authority and he would love us and he would take care of us. And it was this beautiful picture uh, of a relationship between God and man. But very quickly, things kind of go off the rails. We decide as humanity, we don't want to follow you, God. We want to be our own authority. We want to be in charge of our own destiny. And so when that happened, things started to get out of control. And this thing called sin entered in the world. And when this happened, there was incredible pain and suffering and evil and death. And so God says, okay, I will make a promise to you. I will, at some point in human history, I'm going to come and I am going to redeem you. I'm going to take all of the creation that was mine, rightfully so, and from the beginning, I am going to bring it all back under my authority, and I am going to make you and the rest of the world whole again. That this kingdom that I created that now has rebelled against me will one day again be under my authority. And so then Jesus comes along and he says, okay, well, you know how God has ruled in heaven? Well, now heaven is coming to earth. And he is bringing this creation back under his authority. And it takes place through me. And the way that this kind of kingdom has begun is he says it's going to happen over the hearts and minds of those who would submit their lives to me, those who would would follow me, my disciples. They can live in the kingdom of God here and now. They can submit to me or they can, can continue to rebel against me. And so people's response is, of course, they're intrigued, but some people are going, you know what? We really think that this is true. Jesus starts doing these miracles to prove that he's just not talking crazy, that he really is this this Messiah who has come to bring the kingdom. And so people begin to follow him around. In fact, large crowds of people are following him around. And that's kind of where we pick up the story. He's starting to preach this message. He's proving who he is. He has large groups of people. And then he sits them down and here's what he says. In Matthew 1, 5, you got your Bibles, Bible app, you can follow along. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, if you're not a Bible person, here is what's happening. Is This is the beginning of the most famous sermon in all of human history. Matthew 5 through 7, chapters 5 through 7, is going to give us the Sermon on the Mount. And this is going to be really Jesus laying out what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God here on earth. He says, this is the foundation. This is what you need to do and believe. So he continues on. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus starts to rattle off all of these values, all of these ways to live in the kingdom, to be a part of a citizen in the kingdom of God. And what he's doing here is really profound because he is redefining what success looks like for humanity. This is from God's perspective what a successful life looks like. And he takes all the things that we, uh, as, a, as a culture and as a people, all the things that we value that we would say success looks like, he turns them upside down and he says, it's actually the complete opposite of everything that you think it should be. 
And if you're not a Christian here today and you got dragged here because you were promised a pumpkin or something like that, and you're just like, oh, geez, I didn't know I'd have to do this. You know, pumpkins, I could have got it at the grocery store. This better be one heck of a pumpkin. Here's the deal is whether you believe in God, whether you believe in Christianity, you think this is a bunch of hocus pocus and we're crazies, fine. But here's what you need to know, is whether you believe in Jesus or not, this talk that he is giving has changed your life. Again, you don't have to believe any of it, but it has radically changed your life. Because all the values that he just laid out and that he will continue to lay out throughout the, the next couple chapters, all the things that he says have changed the way that you view the world. Because if you were born here in the West, or at least you live here in the West, and you have a certain set of values, those values did not just come out of thin air. You didn't make those up. Those aren't just common sense. Those came from somewhere. And those came from a Judeo-Christian worldview. Because if you live here in the West, this whole uh, way of thought, this whole worldview, is all based on these principles that Jesus has put forth. And so if you begin to look at some of the things that... Uh, that Jesus talks about here, like compassion. Compassion is not something that comes natural to us. It's not something that is a virtue across the world. If you go back to the first century, you go to different places in the world now, compassion is not a virtue. In fact, if you are compassionate to someone, it means that you are weak. So if you've, uh, if you've been here for long, you know that I, on a regular basis, love to watch uh, prison documentaries. It's like my jam, right? Prison documentaries, gang documentaries. Those are like my two, okay? I love them. And it's because there's like this whole other culture, this whole other society that exists within ours, and they have totally different values and ways of thinking than we do. And one of the things that you uh, learn very quickly by watching these things is that if you are an inmate um, and you are compassionate to another inmate, that's not going to pay off well for you. That's going to be seen as weakness. Now, that's not just true in prisons. That's true all over the world, is because that's our natural disposition. What about humility? We've all been around somebody who's constantly talking and bragging about themselves and their families and their accomplishments, and you know what we do when we walk away from those conversations? You're not my friend anymore. You're annoying, because I don't want to hear about it, because we have this value. We think humility is a virtue. And of course, the most obvious one is forgiveness. When you do something wrong, you almost expect people to forgive you if you ask for forgiveness. But this is not natural at all. You don't have to look any further than your very own children to realize forgiveness, not a natural thing. In fact, it is the complete opposite. Because when my son comes and hits his sister, my, my, uh, my daughter does not respond by going, oh, brother, I forgive thee. Let's hug it out. No, that's not what happens. That's not her natural response, and that's not my natural response either. I have to check myself because my response when they get in a fight is, oh, he hit you? Okay, I'll hold him. You hit him back. We'll be equal, right? Everything will be, oh, I've got your back on this one. I get it. Because our natural disposition when we are wronged is not to offer forgiveness. It's to seek revenge. But this virtue of forgiveness comes directly from Jesus. Jesus goes on to give us two metaphors to help illustrate this point. Verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. And so Jesus, to illustrate kind of what he's talking about to, to live out these values in the world, he gives us two metaphors, and they're trying to really make the same point. And so I'll just stick with one of them, which is salt. And he says, there is a connection between the way that salt works and the way that you will operate in the world. First one is this, and they would have known this right off the bat, is salt is a preservative. They obviously didn't have refrigerators, and so if they were going to preserve any kind of food, they would rub salt over it. Because if you don't, we all know how this goes. Food left to its own will begin to rot and it'll begin to decay and, and uh, it'll begin to stink eventually. I remember a couple of years ago, we had a staff member here and, um, and before service, he snuck in and tried to grab one of the, we used to sell tacos after the Saturday night service. And he thought that the tacos had been delivered early. And so he's like, oh, I'm gonna snag one of those before they're all gone. And so he goes and he snags one of those and we're sitting around and he's opening it and he's about to take a bite and I go, and he's like, oh, wow, this looks great. And I go, uh, uh, hold on. That's not guacamole on that taco, my friend. That would be mold on there. And he's, ah, right? And I regret to this day stopping him. I, oh, I wish he had taken a bite. I said, those are the tacos from last week, buddy. Those have not been thrown out for some reason. Uh, I probably wouldn't take a bite of that. It's because when we just leave things, especially food, alone, and we, we don't do anything to preserve it, things go bad. And so what Jesus is saying here is you are the preservative of the world. That as Christians, your job is to continue to preserve the virtues and values that I have, have laid out. Because if you don't, things are going to go really bad. They're going to go in a negative way. The earth rots. The culture begins to stink. Because this is the natural tendency of the universe that we live in. This is true on a cosmic scale. If you're familiar with uh, any, uh, any kind of science that deals with the end of the, end of the world and you know, things like that, that tells us that there is going to be a heat death of the universe. That this thing that we live in, the universe that we live in, it is winding down and eventually will cease to exist and everything in it. Now, there's a long way away. We won't have to worry about that. We will be dead a long time by then, but that's what happens to everything within the universe as well. And we see this. We see this all the time. You look at your car. You look at your house. You look at your spouse. Okay, not your spouse. They, they're, they're great. You look at your body. And everything is kind of winding down and decaying, right? It's not like things are getting better over time if you leave them alone. It's not like your car is getting faster if you just leave it in the parking lot for long enough. It's not like your house is getting more put together. The natural tendency of everything within this universe is to decay, is to die, is to destroy itself. This is not just true of the physical realm, but this is also true morally. In our natural state, we head toward moral chaos and destruction, which sounds so strange to us here in the West because we have been taught this idea that because we have progressed so much in the different arenas of life like technology and education and medicine, that as we progress in these things that we are becoming better people as well. But there's no correlation between the two. Just because we are progressing in all these different arenas does not mean that we're progressing morally, that we're becoming better people. And you don't have to look any further than the 20th century as a perfect example of this. 20th century is known as the bloodiest century in all of human history. And yet we were also the most advanced. We did not become better people. We just became people who are better at killing one another. Because just, 
just because we make progress in these different arenas does not mean that we have made progress morally. And so as nations and communities and families begin to reject Christianity and its worldview, the result is always that things are going to go bad. It might be quick, it might take a while, but as Christianity goes, so do its values and its virtues and the worldview. And so as, um, as Christians, we are called to go into the world and to preserve it. What does this look like? I think this can take many different forms. One of the ways that comes to my mind uh, right off the bat is in our relationships. Is as I watch my own relationships and I watch relationships around me, I see that oftentimes our relationships end up in two places. Either they end up being stale or they blow up in the end. That we experience so much relational conflict that we will send an angry email, an angry uh, text message, that we'll ignore this. Millennials, I've talked about this. We do this thing called ghosting, right? So when we are tired of someone or we're mad at somebody, we don't confront them. We ghost them out later. I never knew you. Depart from me. Peace, right? That was Jesus. He said, anyway, you'll get it later. Um, and And so we're full of relational conflict. And he... Jesus is saying in this moment that we as Christians are supposed to be the one that go, you know what, I'm going to overlook that offense. I'm going to let go of the anger and bitterness. I'm going to offer forgiveness. No, I'm not going to pretend like everything's okay. We need to deal with this issue, but I am not going to allow this relationship to fall apart because I am supposed to preserve, and that includes my relationships. This also includes the people who are around us. I, uh, I get phone calls and emails all the time as a, a pastor when people's lives are, are falling apart. It happens every week because, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of people in the church, and so there's a lot of hurt and a lot of woundedness. And, and I will be totally honest. As people's lives are falling apart, you know what my natural reaction is, and I bet you it is yours as well? I want to run away. I don't want to deal with that. I got my own stuff. I got my own issues. I don't want to deal with your drama. I don't want to deal with your tragedy. I don't want anything to do with that because it's heavy. And so my natural tendency, and yours as well, is when we see people who are broken and lives falling apart, we want to get away from that as quickly as possible. And Jesus says, well, if you're going to preserve, you've got to run towards the pain. You've got to be people who say, you know what, I'm going to get down in the the midst of your pain with you, and I'm going to help preserve your life. Whatever arena of your life is falling apart, I am going to be there to help you try to hold it together. This also applies to seeing people around us, whether they're Christians or not, as we see them starting to make some mistakes. And, and one of the things that you, you probably witnessed yourself is you have a family member, a coworker, a friend, and you see the direction that their life is heading. You see some of the choices that they're making, and you just go, how do you not see where this is going to end up? This is going to be a disaster, right? This, this is going to destroy you, your family, your marriage, your job. And we just sit back and go, not my problem. And Jesus says, well, no, 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 you're supposed to preserve, remember? And so they don't have to listen to you, but you can still go, hey, you know, look, you're an adult. I get it. You're going to do you, but I got to warn you here. I just want to at least try to give you a heads up. If you continue on in this direction, this is going to end up really bad. And our whole motivation for this is because we as Christians have experienced incredible hope and healing that Jesus has begin to put our lives back together, and so we want to continue to bring that message into other people's lives and allow them to experience that hope and healing as well. 
In this verse, Jesus said, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Well, how does salt lose its saltiness? Technically, it can't really, but what he's referring to here is because they come from salt marshes, is he says, the way that salt loses its saltiness is it begins to be um, intermixed with impurities. The impurities begin to be mixed in with the salt, and so it dilutes its saltiness. And so what he's trying to get to is he's saying, you know, if you're not living this thing out, if you're trying to do this Christianity, but you're just trying to do it kind of a mild version of it, a flavorless version of Christianity, you know what you're good for? Nothing. Now, he's not saying I don't love you. He's not saying you're not saved. He's not saying any of those things. What he is saying here is he's saying, if you're not really living this, if you're not truly in this deal, I can't use you for anything. I can't use you to impact people's lives. And not only is that unfortunate for the people who are around you that you won't be able to impact, but that's also going to be a loss for you because you were put here to be salt. And if you're not doing your job, you are going to Never find your purpose. You're never going to experience a fulfillment that you desire. Jesus tells us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be pure in heart. So what he's saying here is he's saying, don't lose your saltiness. Don't allow impurities. Stay pure. And the early church did this in a pretty profound way. What happened is, in the first century, uh, the Christians were surrounded by a primarily pagan culture. And the pagan culture, they loved two things. They loved sex and money. Go figure. And so what they would do is, as a part of their worship experience, is they would be promiscuous. In fact, if you went to a pagan temple, you could hire a prostitute as a part of your worship experience. They would also be incredibly stingy with their money. They, they would acquire as much wealth as they could. And the Christians came along and they said, okay, so if this is culture, this is what Jesus tells us to do, the exact opposite. And so instead of continuing to save all the money for ourselves, we're going to be generous. We give it out to anybody who has need. We're not even worried about our money. And as far as our bodies go, instead of being promiscuous, we're going to reserve those for our spouses only. And the culture around them began to take notice and say, well, that's different. And I got to imagine that they started to see the results of this kind of life. And they thought, you know, I'm not sure if I believe in Jesus, but I do like the way that they live. And within 300 short years, this tiny little group of Christians turned the entire Roman Empire upside down. Why? Because they lived differently than everybody else. This last week, my, uh, my wife gave me uh, tickets to go see a show up in L.A., and so we, we got to go out for the night without the kids, and, and we had dinner together, and then we went to the show. And I got to be honest, it was tough because we didn't get home till 1030. I barely made it. I think she f fell asleep on the way home because like, I don't know, 8.45, typical bedtime for me. And while we were out having a great time, we ran into some sea coasters at the show. It was fun. We got to chat with them and, and hang out and, and all that good stuff. And I started to imagine what if you and I, we had mutual friends where you knew the people that I ran into at the show. And they called you the next morning and they say, oh yeah, the show was great. But dude, craziest thing happened. We ran into Cody and Amy. We talked for a while, but I'm pretty sure that Cody was was a little tipsy. Like, he'd been drinking a little bit. I could definitely smell on his breath. He was walking kind of crazy. Like, I think, I think he may have had one too many. You know what your response rightfully would be? Dude, that's so sketchy. That is so sketchy. The pastor's, you know, what? And you know why that would be sketchy? And I would agree that would be super sketchy. It would be sketchy not because I'm a pastor, because I'm a Christian. 
See, a lot of people, and I don't know where this com comes from, but I've realized this in my years of ministry, is um, people think like there's a, like a way to act as a pastor, and then there's like a way to act like as a, you know, a Christian. Like there's two different like books that we read out of. And so like, you should be doing this. I'm not going to, but for sure you should. And I think, no, there's only one book we read out of the same thing here, people. And so if you think it would be odd for me or for Doyle or for one of the other staff members or your rooted leader to be doing something, that's probably a good indication that you shouldn't be doing it either. And so this may mean that we're going to have to change some things about our life in order to live counterculturally. This may mean that our priorities have to change. That as all of the other families on the block are going to the sporting events and the social events and are sleeping in on Sundays, we're going, okay, I'm dragging the kids out of bed. Sorry, you got to miss the game. And people around are going to go, what are you talking about? There's like church, I think it's like every weekend or something. I know it's on Christmas and Easter, okay? You can go whenever you want. We got a game this weekend. You go, ah, I can't do it. They're going to take notice. When you have to pass up on that business deal because it would mean you would compromise ethically, people are going to go, wait a minute, you're not going to make this money? I can't. When you begin to step back as conversations trying to take a left turn and there's some topics and there's some words and there's some gossip and you just kind of go, I can't really engage right now. You don't have to be condemning. You don't have to be like, oh, you know my ears. They're sensitive to those words, <laughs> right? I can't hear those kinds of things. Look, we've all heard the words, all right? You get over it. But there's a big difference between saying them and being around them. And so people are going to take notice and go, that's weird, man. Like, whenever we start to talk about this, whenever we start to, they don't engage. Why is that? Well, it's because I'm called to be different than everybody else. And so the second thing that salt does is salt enhances. And I'm going to have to kind of go through this pretty quickly here is salt not only preserves, but it enhances. It makes things better. I don't know if you've ever tried to have popcorn or, or pretzels or uh, fries without salt. It is a disappointing experience. <laughs> it is not good, right? Because it is supposed to enhance. And, and so Jesus is pretty clear. Is you are, as Christians, not only supposed to preserve the world around you, but you are supposed to make it better. The world is supposed to look at you and go, if they were not here, this would be far less. Our communities, our families, our neighborhoods, our schools, they would not be what they are today if Christians were not around. And historically, Christians have took this very seriously. And I wish I could probably give a whole talk just on this topic right here, and there's been tons of books written about it, but it is not a coincidence that women's rights, that children's rights, that humanitarian rights, that uh, equality, democracy, education, science, hospitals, and charities all arose in the West. You know why? Because they were all based on the Christian worldview, where people assume that the universe, that it, it could be knowable because there was a God who was knowable, that it could be structured because there was a God who was structured, that people had value because they were all made in God's image, and it doesn't matter their age or their race or their gender, but everybody is equal. As you look at the hospitals around the world, it is not a coincidence that they all have some kind of biblical name in them. It's because Christians says, well, we're called to be people who care for those around us. Now, here's the problem. Is um, growing up in the summers, every single day, what I would do is I would do two things. I would skate and I would surf. 
And skating usually ended with me getting kind of scraped up either on my knees or my shins or my elbows or whatever. And then I would go directly from that to the beach and surf. And you know what happens when you have open wounds and you go into salt water? Oh, it stings. Now, it heals. It helps clean out some of that gunk in there. But man, it is uncomfortable. It can sting. And this is exactly why Jesus says in verse uh, 11, he says, Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and uh, falsely on, on my account. He says, don't be surprised when you're coming to help people. You're coming to bring hope into their life and they don't see it that way. Because the, same, they're, they're, the people who, who you bring this message and you show this lifestyle to, they either may be attracted to it or repelled by it. And so don't be shocked when people say, ooh, that stings, ooh, I don't want you around. I'm not sure we can hang out any longer because you're exposing some things in my life. You're revealing some things about me. You're, you're kind of getting into those places of woundedness and I don't think I want you there. He says, don't be shocked when this happens. And there's an important distinction and I'll just mention it. He says, make sure it's on my account because of me, not because of you. Because like, there's a lot of rejection that we experience. There's a lot of persecution. There's a lot of people who are unhappy with us. But I got to be honest, at least in my experience in my life, most of it has not been because I'm acting like Jesus. Because <laughs> I'm acting like Cody. And they don't really like that. And I can't really blame them. And so he says, make sure that it's because you're acting like me, not like you. I think the way we can do this is go back to our, our salt, salt uh, metaphor is salt has two elements, sodium and chlorine. And you have to have both of those in order for it to be salt. Well, the same is true with Christianity. There's two elements. You've got to have truth and you've got to have love. And if you don't have both of those, you don't have salt. And so you have to act as both truth and love. And if there are people who are attracted and repelled by you, that probably means you're in the sweet spot, that you're doing it right. And when those people do reject you because of your holy living, not because you're obnoxious, not because you're self-righteous, not because you're shoving it in their face, but because they simply don't like the way that you live, because you live like Christ, he says, rejoice. He says, don't be a victim. Don't have a pity party. He says, when this happens, realize you're doing it right and rejoice in fact he says because there's going to be a reward that awaits you so let me finish this real quick in verse 16 this is how this section ends it says in the same way let your light shine before others and this is important so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven see salt and light they're never the point they're never the purpose they are always there to serve something bigger i have yet to hear anyone come to me and say you know have you heard about the salt that they're serving at Ruth Chris? Oh, I just, oh, I sprinkle it in my mouth. It's so good. I don't even want steak. Ugh, steak, give me salt. No one ever says that. You know why? Because salt is not the point. Salt is never the point. Salt is always there to support, to serve, to be a part of a bigger purpose. And so I think Jesus would say to us, you got to realize that you exist in the world not for yourself. You're not the point. I'm the point. You're here to be a pointer to the point. And so as you, as you go through life and you begin and you continue to think that this life is about you, it's about your fulfillment, your happiness, your pleasure, you will continue to chase whatever you think the next thing is that's going to make you happy. 
And you will realize very quickly that even if you get that thing, it's not gonna make you happy. It's not gonna fulfill you. That's not gonna be your purpose. And so you will continue that pattern your entire life until you finally realize you're not the point. I am. And when you begin to live as if you're not the point, but I am the point, it is only then that you're going to find your fulfillment. It's only then that you're gonna find satisfaction and purpose. And so let me end with, uh, with this. Is the bottom line at the end of the day, if you don't hear anything, is simply you and I were called to be salt and light in the world so that through us, people would not be impressed. People will not be uh, uh, so amped on, on who we are and having a great neighbor and having a good person who is a part of our friend circle. It is so that we can be pointers to the point so that they may come to know your heavenly father. So let me end with three simple questions. First question is this, whose life were you put into so that you could be salt and light? I do believe that God has strategically placed us in the families, in the communities, in our schools, in our workplaces, so that we could bring change into people's lives. You are not here as an accident. You may think that this job, this family, this community, this, it's just all random, and I'm here to tell you that you were placed there for a reason. And the reason is to bring change into somebody's life. Second question, what can I do to move from simply being a good person to pointing people to Christ? I hope that people look at you and go, man, I am so glad that they're my neighbor. I am so glad that we're friends. I'm so glad that we get to work together because they're such a good person. I want you to figure out how do I go from just being a good person in their life to connecting the dots that I'm a good person because of Christ. How do I connect the dots so that people through me just being a, a good, decent person, they can see it's about Jesus. And last question is, what impurities have I allowed to seep into my life that has limited or negated my impact? Are there things in my life that I have allowed to seep in, impurities, lifestyle issues, character issues in which I am no longer able to impact the world like God has designed me to do because I have lost my saltiness? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for uh, challenging scriptures that you have given us, ones that um, may have been uttered a couple thousand years ago but are still so relevant to our lives today. You had such incredible insight into who we are and what it would take to follow you. And Lord, we, uh, we see that as incredible blessing and freedom. And so Lord, uh, my prayer is that we would go into our, our week and we would realize that you have put us in some very specific strategic places so that we may impact those around us. And so, Lord God, help us to see how we can be better at being pointers to you. And so, Lord God, we thank you. We love you. We pray that you would use this this week. In the name we pray, amen.